Well, as always, church, it's good to be with you. If you're new or visiting, we're glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, go and open up to the book of Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. We'll be there in just a little bit. So we're continuing on to the book of Exodus. We've been there for some time. We'll be there for some time. But today, Exodus 19, we're actually in a very, very significant week. Um, obviously, every week is significant, but this week in particular, it marks this massive transition that's happening in the narrative, in the story, in the arc of Exodus. See, the story of Exodus in so many ways has been leading us to this, this transition in Exodus 19 and 20. Everything God's been doing has been leading us to this point, so let me just rehash the story just really quickly. Remember, Exodus 1 started off with the people of Israel were growing in number, growing in strength all throughout Egypt. They had favor with the Egyptians. They had favor with Pharaoh. But then that Pharaoh died, and then Pharaoh, after Pharaoh, after Pharaoh, began to oppress them and enslave them, and they became the slaves of Egypt. And it was in the midst of that, in the midst of that oppression, that suffering, that God stepped in to save them. And God told his people that he would set them free so that they could worship and serve him. He was setting them free so they could be bound to him. And now that we're finally here at Mount Sinai, um, Mount Sinai where God's going to teach his people finally, okay, I set you free for this purpose so that you may worship and serve me. Here's what it means to know me. They're about to, they're about to learn what it means to serve God, what it means to really have true freedom. And the point of the text today is simply this, that to understand the commands of God you first have to understand the holiness of God. To understand the commands God's going to give his people, you have to first understand the holiness of God. See, chapter 20 is when God gives his famous 10 commandments that we're all familiar with probably, and we're gonna cover every single one of them, but chapter 19 is God getting his people ready to receive them. He's getting us ready to receive them because before they ever believe his instruction, they have to believe that he is Holy. If we're ever going to understand the truly life-giving nature of God's law and his commands, we have to see that first he is like nothing and no one else. That nothing compares to him, we have to believe that first before we understand his instruction. And that order of communication makes all the sense in the world when you think about it. That order of communication of God saying, here's who I am before I tell you what to do, makes all the sense in the world when you think about it. Like in your life... In your life, who you believe someone to be drastically affects the way you receive their instruction, right? Who you perceive them to be is going to drastically affect the way you receive their instruction. If you think somebody and you believe that somebody is an expert or they're an authority on a particular subject or matter, you're going to receive their instruction, their counsel, their wisdom differently than you're going to receive if you think that person is a novice or unintelligent, going to change the way you hear them. The way you perceive someone to be changes the way you receive their instruction. So when I came to the Austin Stone, I was 23 years old and I was an intern, okay? I had so many dysfunctions, okay? I'm not going to belabor the point. It'd be an hour and a half sermon. I'm not going to belabor the point, but I had a lot of dysfunctions. And one of the main ones was this, is that I did not listen to other people. And as I wrote this, it's like, man, so much has changed, I guess. But I didn't listen to other people very well. If you had a counsel that was different than what I thought, I was stubborn. Now, that's true of every 23-year-old. If you're here and you're 23, you're like, not me. Definitely you. Um, <laughs> definitely you. If you just said not me. Um, but I was especially stubborn, especially stubborn. And so, because in my mind, in my economy, I perceived that I was smarter, more knowledgeable than the person talking to me. 
no matter their age, no matter their wisdom, no matter their maturity, I kind of assumed, well, I'm probably smarter than you, and so I'll take your advice and your opinion, but I'll just consider it. It's not something I have to listen to, okay? I viewed myself as the expert. So once I started my internship here at the Austin Stone, it became very clear to my new supervisor and mentor that my stubbornness was an issue. So he very quickly took me to lunch, sat me down, said, Tyler, you need to focus on listening and learning more than speaking. My immediate response was, you're dumb. Like, that was my immediate thought. I was like, man, that's a good thought for someone who's so stupid. Like, that, like that's what I thought. I'm not, I'm not lying to you. 23 years old, Tyler was not, I need a lot of sanctification. So I, I, I had that thought. I, I remember thinking as he's talking, I was furious. It's like, who is this guy to tell me what I can and cannot do? And I, and I remember thinking, he has not, I remember thinking, he has not thought this through. That's, I remember thinking, he has not thought this through. Now, little did I know at the time that the, the man who was speaking these, these words to me, I could have accused him of plenty of different things that he's weak at, but being stupid and thoughtless and careless for this particular person is not one of them. I come to find out this particular man in my life, he's one of the smartest people and thoughtful people I've ever met. And so who I perceived him to be was not intelligent, not thoughtful, and so when he gave me instruction, I did not receive it. He's further down the road than me in Christ, and yet he's trying to tell me where wisdom is, and I will not receive it because I don't think that's who he is. That's why I didn't receive his instruction. My perception ruined my ability to receive his instruction because I wish I would have listened because that next season of my life was rough. I remember I hurt people because I spoke too rashly and quickly in counseling sessions. I hurt my wife because I did the exact same thing with her. I, and I got rebuked by a lot of different people in this church. Maybe you're one of them. Like a lot of people had to pull me aside and say, hey, stop. Like that, that sort of conversation. Why did all that happen? Because someone sat me down and I did not understand who they were. I did not understand this person is smart, thoughtful, and not careless. They see this clearly. They're trying to help you. But my perception, my wrong perception, ruined my ability to receive their instruction. In the same way with God, in the same way with God, we need a fresh reminder of who he is before we receive his commands. Because his ten commandments are going to be like no other commandments. Why? Because he's like no other being. You don't know anything like him. He's holy. He's set apart. He's outside of your categories, so you have to be reminded of who he is before he tells you what to do. And in our text today, there's going to be two truths in particular he wants to make abundantly clear to us. Two truths in particular that God wants to say, this is who I am, and if you're ever going to understand what my holiness is, you have to understand these two truths about me. You're going to see that God can only be approached on his terms, he can only be approached on his terms, and he alone saves us to be with him. He can only be approached on his terms, and he alone saves us to be with him. Look at Exodus 19, 1 through 3. 1 through 3. It says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. They had finally arrived to this mountain where God had been leading them. And God had promised Moses before he sent any plagues that this moment would happen. He told Moses, there's coming a day when I'm going to bring you to this sacred mountain where I'm going to speak to the people. Look at Exodus 3. Don't turn. Exodus 3. 
Right when God calls Moses, read this account with me. Exodus 3.11, it says, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, God said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. On this mountain. God, where he started with Moses, calling him to himself to lead his people, he's now taken the people out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, in the wilderness, and led them back to that very same mountain where they will learn what it means to serve him. It's a sign from Moses. He's at the mountain. He's remembering I can't believe he did it. We're here. But Israel's gonna learn very, very quickly that you can't just approach God casually. Even though God wants to know them and he saved them, they're gonna learn really quickly. We can't just approach him casually. We have to prepare ourselves before we could ever know God in all the ways he wants us to. Look at Exodus 19.10. This is what the word of God says. It says, the Lord said to Moses, so they're in front of the mountain, it says, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up, on, up, up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet, trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. So God's coming to his people. He's about to speak to them. In the sight of all of Israel, he's going to speak to them at Mount Sinai, and yet he's telling them, I'm not like anyone else you know, though. Do not get me wanting to speak to you confused as if you can approach me casually. He says, you have to approach me within the boundaries that I've set and the mediator I've chosen. The boundaries I've set and the mediator I have chosen. They must approach him on his terms or they will die. This is the God who wants to know them and yet he says, if you get too close to me, you're going to have to die. He gives them restrictions. He gives them boundaries. They have a couple of days to prepare. They have certain places to stand, certain clothes to wear, certain actions to abstain from. Now, why is he telling them to do all these things? Is it, are they trying to clean themselves up before God? No, he's saying, if you're going to meet with me, your entire life has to be devoted to me. So God is saying, I'm not like anyone else you know. Don't confuse me speaking as if all of a sudden, you can say whatever you want, do whatever you want. There are very clear, rigid, specific boundaries that you have to adhere to if you're going to know someone as worthy and as perfect and as pure as me. See, before they can ever understand the commands he's going to give to them, they have to understand he is speaking as one with unparalleled power and authority. He's saying, I'm holy. You don't, Israel, you don't know anyone like me. Any category you have, I'm outside of it in power and authority and perfection. You don't understand. So get yourself ready. Take three days, get ready. I'm coming to speak with you. Now, with this aspect of God, in this text, it's incredibly important. The separation between God and his people is incredibly important in this text, but, but it wouldn't feel that different for Israel. 
it really wouldn't feel that different for them because they were used, they were used to a supreme leader like in Pharaoh telling them what to do and putting distance between himself and them. Like, obviously God is different from Pharaoh, but yet the act, what he's doing would feel familiar to them. Okay, we have a new supreme leader, and now these are his boundaries we have to keep in line or he'll kill us. It feels exactly the same probably to them because that was a common practice for monarchs in that day and age. But what made God holy, what made him different, was that they had never heard anything like him because while he was separate from them, while he, didn't, he couldn't just be casually approached by them, he also had been the one who had done all the work to save them. That the one who said, you can't approach me any way you want is also the one who reminds them, but I'm the one who saved you. He tells them, I don't want you to be my slaves. I want you to be my people of love. Look at verse three. Verse three. First thing God says to the people, he says, the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, talking to Moses, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So the God that they had to fearfully approach is the one who says, but remember, I saved you. Remember who I am. The first, they get to the mountain, and the first thing out of God's mouth is retelling them, remember what I did for you? He brings to their mind, remember what I did to the Egyptians for you? Do you remember how I bore you on eagle's wings, how I took you through the Red Sea, how I protected you in the wilderness? Remember what I've done for you. Remember, you have not done a thing to earn this. You have been helpless and carried in my wings, so to speak. I've done all the work. See, monarchs in those days, supreme leaders in those days, they would provide protection for people, but it required something from them. What would happen a lot in, the, in that area of the world at that particular time Monarchs, more powerful monarchs would say to a weaker people, I will protect you, but you have to do certain things for me. And Israel was used to that sort of economy, okay? He would have a supreme leader, but we have to do things for him in order to get his blessing and his protection. And what this God is saying is, I have done everything. I saved you. I protected you, and I received nothing. The only thing God received was an ungrateful, needy people who he wanted to share his love with. God's telling them, I'm not like anything else you understand. There are boundaries, there are limits, and yet I saved you. And he tells them, he tells them he's going to give them his law so that they can be his treasured possession and so that they can be his kingdom of priests, so that they could be his most treasured possession and so that they could be his kingdom of priests. I mean, you think about that language, Think about that language God is using and it should make your heart be in awe of who God is because he's saying, no, I don't want you to be just anybody to me. I want you to be what's most sacred to me in all that I've made. He doesn't want slaves who labor in exhaustion and bitterness. He wants them to be his greatest delight in all of creation. He wants them to have unfettered access to him and represent him in all the earth. 
See, when you think about this language of treasured possession and kingdom of priests, here's what he's conjuring up in our minds is the idea of that we're God's children. When he talks about treasured possession and kingdom of priests, what he's conjuring up for us is saying, this people of mine, they're my children. They're special to me. When, when I think about my life and all that God has given to me and my wife Lauren and all the things he's entrusted to us, he's given us incredible things from his creation. We have material blessings. All of us in this room have material blessings that most of the world does not have, and we should be incredibly grateful and thankful for those things. Me and Lauren have friends and family we, we could not imagine living life without. But when I look at everything that God has given me, my most treasured possession, and those who have most access to me are my children. I mean, think of, when I think about everything that I have, what's the first thing that I, if I could save it, what would I save? My children. They're my most treasured possession in all of my life because they bring me joy and they melt my heart like nobody else. Just this last week, uh, my son Henry, our, our middle child, we have three, um, and sleep right now is a very rare commodity. Um, if I could barter something with you for sleep, I would do anything probably. And my son Henry, he's teething, so he's having a hard time going to sleep. And I was up with him from 3.45 to 5.15 the other night. And a lot of you, some of you in this room have um, kids, some of you don't. There is an anger um, at 4 a.m. when you're not sleeping that is just, you repent a lot. You just have to repent a lot. Um, it's like nothing you've ever felt before. And I'm sitting there, and I, I'm getting so frustrated, so angry. He won't go to sleep. He won't calm down. And so I'm in the room with him. It's dark, and I'm rocking him, and he's finally got quiet. He's not moving. And so I take my, my phone, and I just turn on the home screen, just kind of sh shine a faint light to see, please, God, let his eyes be closed, okay? I shine a light, and of course, he's sitting there just staring at me. <laughs> and immediately, you're laughing, I got angry, okay? I felt anger rising up within me, but because of the faint light, Henry could now see me, and he just smiled at me. He just smiled at me. And I can, in that moment, my anger dissipated, and I just, I smiled back. It was involuntary. He smiled at me, and I just wanted to smile back at him. I didn't think, you better smile. It just came out, right? It was involuntary because he's my son. Now, I love all of you in this room, but if you keep me up from 345 to 515, no amount of your smiling is making me happy with you. If I smile back, it may be a murderous rage smile, okay? Joker-level smile. That's, what you, that's all you're getting from me at 4 a.m. if you're keeping me awake. But my son, my son smiles, I just smile back. And I remember thinking, it's 4.30, who cares? This is my son. Now, that's not because I'm super godly. That's because that's what sons do to their fathers. That's what they do. They smile at you, and you just can't help but smile back. There are, that's from my both my daughters and my son. They are our most treasured possession. No one can move my heart the way they can. Nobody can. And God's saying, I own everything. He's saying, look at the universe. It's all mine. All of its wonders, all of the majesty, all of the power, all the things that they didn't even know about then that we know about now, these incredible images from space. And you think, those are all his. And he says, I want you to be my most treasured possession. You. Weak, feeble, ungrateful, sinful people, you, I want you to be my treasured 
possession. He's saying, I want to look at you at 4 a.m., so to speak, and when you smile, I can't help but smile back at you. That's what he's saying. That's what he wants. He's saying, I want you to be this kingdom of priests who has this unfettered access to me. Think about in your life, if you have kids, who has more access to you and who represents what you look like more than your children? God is saying, this people of mine, they are more than just some nation state or ethnic group. They're my children. And God, it's incredible, God called them that before he sent one plague. Exodus 4.22, listen to how he speaks about Israel. This is before he saves them. He says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Before God ever gave one law to his people, he gave them his fatherly love. Before he gave one law, before he gave them any instruction, he gave them his heart. Before any instruction, he says, my heart's all yours. He saved, he carried them, he loved them, and his law was given to them so they could express what it means to be children. And and it's in this juxtaposition, this tension, where we see why God is so holy, where you see that he's like nothing that you know Because he's both. He works and he wants a relationship of love with you. And he has unyielding boundaries that if you don't adhere to them, you will die. He's both. He's both at the exact same time. He calls us to be near and he cautions us to stay away at the same time. See, in our minds, we'd like for him to be one or the other. We would like to perceive of him as either all law or all grace, and God says, I'm both. And you have to understand he's both if you're gonna understand his commands because his commands flow from who he is. His commands, his law flows from his love and his authority. It flows from his mercy and his perfection. And Exodus 19 is God saying, you have to remember who I am and who you are before I tell you what to do. You have to go through this process. But here's the thing, Israel could not be faithful to God. They just couldn't do it. They just could not be faithful. God wanted them. He says, I want you to be my treasured possession. Do not think Old Testament God is somehow more mean or angrier. His desires are the same. He wants them to be his treasured possession, his sons, his daughters. He wants that. But they refuse to obey. They refuse to fulfill his commands. They refuse to listen. Look at Exodus Exodus 19.5. You can see why their refusal to obey cost them. Exodus 19.5. Now, therefore, look at that word, if. If. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. If. If they obeyed. And if they kept the covenant then they would be treasured. God's saying, I want you to be my treasured people, my treasured possession, but you have to obey me. You can't treat me as if I'm just anybody else. And what has been clear so far in the wilderness, what's gonna be clear throughout the book of Exodus, and what Israel represents is what humanity is like with God, is that for every human being, that is an insurmountable if. If. 
every human being. That's an insurmountable if because we can't help but disobey and forsake him and go to other lovers. We can't help it. Your sin, my sin, it makes us, we still want to be treasured, just not by God. But that's what happens now in human heart without Jesus. All of a sudden, you want to be treasured, you want to be adored, you want to be special, just not to God. To anything and anyone else, just not God. But God loved his people too much to let them flounder and sin forever. Because if, if the historian's there, then God may want it, but it's not going to happen because that if is insurmountable. But God didn't want them to flounder in their sin forever because this salvation, this covenant was just pointing forward. This covenant he's making is actually getting us ready for what's going to be fulfilled and realized in Jesus Christ. Because in order to rescue us from our rebellion and make us sons and daughters, God had to send his own son. And Jesus came to accomplish the salvation and establish this new covenant where God's mercy and God's perfection are clearly seen. The new covenant that Jesus makes, that this covenant is pointing us towards, it showcases that God is both merciful and perfect. That God will be honored above all. His word will be honored above all. And we will be his treasured people in all the earth. How do you get a covenant like that? How is it possible to both honor God completely and us be saved? How is it possible? It's going to cost Jesus everything. This new covenant that he brings, it's a covenant secured by a gruesome death. Because on the cross, Jesus honors God above all. On the cross, his death shows us that this new covenant he gives to his people, that it costs Jesus everything. That it costs Jesus everything. The cross says if a people like us who never fulfill the if are going to know a God like him whose perfection and purity and beauty is like no other, the perfect son has to die. There is no exception. You remember Exodus 19, he puts boundaries in place. You can stand here and not there. You can walk this far, not this far. He has a new boundary. He has a new way to know him, and it's only through Jesus Christ, his death. He's the new boundary. He's the new way. You cannot approach me any way you want. You have to approach me through my son and his death in particular. Jesus gives us a covenant where God is honored above all the way he should be, and he showcases God's mercy and his love and that he takes everything our sin deserves so that we can be his treasured possession. The cross of Jesus Christ fulfills this covenant and honors God and saves us. So then Jesus, and Jesus alone, he takes the if of the old covenant and he turns it into the you are of the new covenant. Jesus and him alone, he takes the if of the old covenant and he turns it into the you are of the new covenant. Look at Exodus 19, five through six again. Let's just feel how great God's desires are, but how they're dependent on if we'll obey. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, therefore, if. Did you know if you, outside of Jesus, your identity, your hope, your future, your joy is all contingent on if. This is both true for the Mosaic law, but also if you're here and you don't know Jesus, your whole life is contingent on if. 
If I'm faithful, if I get that job, if I have health, if I have money, if I get the relationships that I want, if, 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 if I get those things, then I'll have an identity, a future, a hope. And what you find in this life is that is a very fragile if. If it's dependent upon your faithfulness and circumstances in this life, you will eventually have no hope, no identity, and lose everything. That's life outside of Christ. But then God sent his son to give a covenant where he meets every condition. And I want you to listen how Peter uses the exact same language, but how he talks to people who believe in Jesus. 1 Peter 2.9. But you are. You are. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light, but you are. In Christ, you simply are what you fail to be on your own. You simply are. You are chosen, you are treasured, you are his. There's no if anymore, there's no doubt, there's no maybe, there simply is you are because he met every condition. No one else can offer you that, by the way. All they can offer is maybe a more probable if, but it will fail too. And God says, you simply are because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't tell my people now, if you obey, I just say, you are my treasured possession. You are my people. See, God's like no other. No other could give a confidence as to who you are in your future the way God can. He's holy, so he gives us a holy salvation like no other, an identity like no other that can't be taken away from you because Jesus already accomplished everything. And so if you're ever going to understand all the commands, all the commands in the scriptures, if you're ever going to understand all of it, you have to first believe this. If you're ever going to understand all the things that God has to say to you in every area of life he speaks to, you have to understand and believe first who he is and who you are in Christ. Because if you don't, if you don't go through this process of remembering, this is who God is. He found a way to honor his name and love me at the exact same time, and it came to the death of Jesus Christ, and now I simply am his son. I am everything he wanted me to be because of Jesus. If you don't believe that first, then you'll not understand his commands. And especially in the church, if you don't believe this gospel, this good news first, then his commandments will either be burdensome or optional. And either way, you'll be miserable. His commandments will either become burdensome to you or optional to you, and either way, you'll be miserable. See, when you forget the gospel that God in Christ has done everything needed for who you are, your identity, your hope, your future, that no matter what comes, no matter what happens, you are simply his son or daughter in Christ, when you forget that, then you begin to believe that the only way you know you are loved is if you obey. Then his commandments become burdensome. You begin to think, I'm only really 100% positive that I'm loved so long as I obey. When, it, when your life is based on if, then following Christ and being a Christian becomes a highly pressurized situation. 
Why? Because you can't admit wrongdoing. You can't admit lack of love for God. You can't admit sin or insecurity or anger. Why? Because if you admit that, then all of a sudden you don't know if you're loved. That's why if we're not careful and we don't remember this gospel, we will be a people who start faking it. Because we don't want to admit that we're weak. Because if we're weak, then who are we? Because it's based on my obedience and based on my faithfulness. And if I'm not faithful, then what hope do I have? And so when you fail, you start faking it. When you start confessing, you confess half-truths. You confess just enough. And so you start to fake. And then if you begin to obey, in this religious mindset, if you begin to actually obey, it's not joyful. It's like paying taxes. You're obeying so you won't get in trouble. Because you don't have the economy of Jesus did everything, so I obey out of joy now. It's I have to carry this weight, and if I fail, I get in trouble. So now I obey, and it's burdensome. When you forget this gospel and you try to obey his commands without it, it's exhausting. This is why people who who live in religious mindsets are exhausted and burdened because you've confused that your obedience is not an expression of who you are. Your obedience is the basis of who you are. And it's miserable. It really is. Because only Jesus could carry that weight. Only Jesus can obey in such a way where it doesn't exhaust him and make him have to fake it because he's pure and perfect. We're not. And so if you don't remember the gospel, his commandments will become burdensome. Or if you don't remember the gospel, you'll begin to believe his commandments are optional. You'll begin to believe his commandments are optional. You'll begin to think that all of the incredible you are statements, you are chosen, you are my priest, you are my children, you'll begin to forget that all of those you are statements actually cost God something. You'll begin to forget that our new identity as sons and daughters did not come to you simply because God changed his mind. You're not, if you're in Christ, you are not a son and daughter simply because God in the Old Testament was like, nope, don't like him. And the New Testament was like, no, I like him. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. You begin to forget that you're never simply a son or a daughter just on your own. You're a son, you're a daughter because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Your sonship, your being a daughter is always tied to him. You can't just approach him as if, hey, I'm the son, I can do whatever I want. I'm loved. If I obey, it doesn't really matter because I'm his. You've forgotten that your ability to have all of those beautiful you are statements given to you cost Jesus everything. Everything you have to revel and rejoice in was given to you through the death of our king. You'll forget that Jesus died for you so that you could finally obey. And when you see his commandments as optional, I'll get around to them if I like, you'll become miserable as well because his commands are where life is found. Like only the Bible can, it threads this truth in two sentences. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. They're not optional. And his commandments are not burdensome. It's the love of God that causes you to keep his commands. They're not burdensome, 
because they don't save you, and they're not optional because they cost Jesus everything. You'll never understand the commands unless you, that statement I just said, you've got to understand that. They're not burdensome because they don't save you, but they're not optional because they cost Jesus everything. They cost Jesus everything. See, God saves and he demands at the exact same time. And when you begin to see him for who he is, you begin to understand, oh, his instruction, his commands for me, what they are is for my freedom and my flourishing. That's why God tells you what to do, because he knows where life is, and you don't. And you don't. I don't. But he knows. And his commands are meant to say, here's what my sons and here's what my daughters live like. This is what my family's like. See, next week, we're going to start a 10-week series going through the Ten Commandments. We're going to walk through every single one of them. But before you hear a command from that series, before you open your Bible and you read, I mean, any command of Scripture, before you hear a sermon preached about what God has to say, here's the question you have to to ask yourself and come to a conclusion on. Who do I think God is and who am I? Who do I think God is and who am I? Who's the one speaking here? What's he like? Is he holy? Is he like nothing I've ever found before? Or is he one of many Opinions that I'm going to consider? Or is he someone I'll give parts of my life to, but he's not trustworthy with everything? Or I've never really thought about it, I just kind of go with the flow. How you answer that question of who do you think God is, who does he say you are, is going to shape everything about how you receive his instruction in chapter 20. A couple of years ago, I, I met a young guy visiting our church. I met him out in the foyer. And he had some real serious questions he wanted to ask me about what we believe as a church. They were really good questions, but I could tell by the way he asked me, he was looking for a fight. Like, I could just tell by the way he asked me the question that he was trying to trap me and make me say something where he could just pounce. But I, I'm honestly, I, we want to be a welcome place for people who have issues, have concerns, maybe with God or the church. We want to be warm to them. And so I wanted to answer his question because I knew it was serious for him. So he asked me, what do you believe about this? And in the moment, I really think God just gave me wisdom in the moment because I didn't know why I thought to do this. But when he asked me the question, I didn't respond to it directly. I just said, hey, man, who do you think Jesus is? Like, who do you think he is? And he looked at me, his, his facial expression told me he didn't really know what I was getting at. And I said, well, the reason I asked you that question is because who you think he is determines how serious you take his instruction. I told him, I said, man, I think that he loved me. I believe that he died for me. I believe he actually rose from the dead for me. I believe he reigns over everything right now. He reigns over you. He reigns over me. He has all authority. That's who I believe him to be. He is holy. I haven't found anything as satisfying as him. So, his word 
trumps mind and yours. That's what I believe him to be. So his ethics, his values, his morality, his instruction trumps yours and mine. I said, but if you just think he's some nice teacher, just someone to consider as one of many options, you'll never understand why I believe what I believe. You'll never understand it because we look at God and we see two different people. Before you listen and before you hear any of his commands, prepare yourself by listening to his love for you at the cross of Jesus Christ. Prepare yourself by going, before he tells me what to do, may it, no matter how hard it may be, hear him say, you are treasured because of him. You don't have to doubt it for a second. I don't care how your week was. I don't care how your last night was. I don't care how your morning was. In Christ, you simply are. You are all those things. And when that rings true in your heart, you'll finally understand what Jesus says when he tells us his yoke is easy and his burden is light and his commands set you free. Let's pray together. Father, God, would you just keep us just quiet for a second? God, would you give us the grace in this moment just to consider the realities that Jesus accomplished? Would you help us consider just for a second that, God, you have given to us through Jesus an identity and a future and an assurance that is like no other. God, that every other idea about you, every other way of thinking, God, all of it, our future, our hope, our identity is contingent upon an if that we accomplish. But God, you have done what only you can. You have honored your name above all and your word above all. And you have made us where people like us can know with a shadow of a doubt we're loved. And God, it is easy for us to forget that. Oh God, it is easy for us to be apathetic towards that. It is easy for us to say, that's old news. I've heard that before while our hearts sit lifeless. And God, what I would love for you to do is just give us a fresh reminder of just because you've heard it before doesn't make it any less glorious. Just because you've heard it before doesn't mean you've ever believed it. So God, just in this moment, make us a people who believe that in Christ we simply are. We are yours. We are treasured. We are loved. We are children that when we smile, you smile back. We are people that though we fail, and though we failed you in egregious ways, 
God, you have given us a hope that transcends all that. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.